Good morning. This is our second week in our series on 2 Corinthians. Last week, Toby spoke about the first 22 verses of chapter 1, setting the scene for the letter and Paul's purpose. The letter is principally about reconciliation in different forms, written in response to a complicated history between Paul and the Corinthian church. He is therefore addressing the words to a confused and bruised people. It is about reconciliation to each other, our own thoughts, beliefs, our hearts to God, and God's plan to reconcile the world to himself. I love birthdays and I love presents. For my sixth birthday, my parents bought me a Barbie doll named Shelley and gave her to me at my birthday party. I was so delighted with this present. I loved Barbie dolls and Shelley was a wonderful addition to my collection. The day I got Shelley, my brothers took her and they decided it would be a great idea to bury her in the back garden, making a Shelley mud pie grave. My new shiny Barbie doll was ruined by a mud burial on the very day I got her. I was devastated. It was a painful time for me. I think my dad referred to it as potentially the unforgivable sin. Since then, I've had to forgive my brothers for what they did to my Barbie doll. But despite the dark spot in our past, we got through it and are good friends to this day. Um, But today we are going to be looking at reconciliation, perhaps a bit more serious than just a Barbie doll, of the reconciliation of the Corinthians with Paul and with each other after a painful matter. My hope and prayer this morning is that through this text, God, by his spirit, would come and break into the situations in our lives where we need forgiveness or to forgive, areas we need reconciliation or healing, that we would see his spirit at work in our hearts as he transforms us, and that we would have the courage to display the glory and aroma of Christ everywhere we go. Scott is going to come and read to us 2 Corinthians one twenty three to 3 3. If Scott can figure out the technical matters. <laughs> I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you who I grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone 
has caused grief. He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what... And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we aren't unaware of his schemes. Now, when, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal processions in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, In Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Thank you so much, Scott. The first section we're going to talk about is 123-24. Paul explains the change in his travel plans of why he couldn't come to Corinth. It begins in 123, where Paul calls God as his witness against him, against his very life. This language is reminiscent of a solemn vow or stemming from the law courts. Paul is appealing to a higher judicial power. God himself is the incomparable witness for his reason. It was to spare the Corinthians that he did not come. He is trying to snuff out unhealthy speculation concerning his motive for not appearing. He says, not that we lord it over you. Paul is saying, I don't have dominion over your faith. He is trying to get a relationship that has gone off track, back on track. Paul is reaffirming that his relationship with them is positive. They are workers together to increase their love of Christ and thereby their joy. In 2, 1 to 4, Paul expresses the extent to which his joy and gladness is tied in with the Corinthians. 
as in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul shows how intertwined he and the church are. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He wrote the letter so when he does return to Corinth, he would not be distressed by those who should have made him rejoice. When Paul talks about the painful visit, the words he uses refers to distress, grief, sorrow, and is associated with various experiences of pain. This situation has been a big deal to Paul, so much so that he cannot make another visit because of the pain it would cause him. To return to Corinth would have been the very antithesis of joy, the very opposite of what it should have been. In 2.3, grief and joy mingle together in this section as he rehearses the pain that was caused and deeply felt and the relief that came once the offender relented. Few experiences in church life are as difficult as the soul-draining sadness of relational conflict and tension. As God offers consolation in the midst of grief, Paul is sure that God will bring joy out of a painful relationship. Paul even goes as far as to say that he has confidence in all of them because of their faith in Jesus and the transforming walk of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the congregation. The Corinthians remained steadfast at the church of Jesus Christ by a response of faith to the work of Christ. It is by faith that they stand firm. The beautiful thing in this section is that Paul is showing how important the Corinthian church are to him. If he inflicted pain on them, he would have tied up the very source of his happiness. They are the ones who bring him joy. The final words of verse 4 say, to let you know the depth of my love for you. It is the most overt statement of Paul's feelings for and commitment to the community at Corinth. The word ordering of this section in the Greek places love as the first word of the clause. This was a first century grammatical way of highlighting an especially important point or concept. Love. All of this was motivated by love for them and for the church. We see Paul's heart for this church. And I think we need to recognize that we are workers together and encourage each other on in our faith so that we can stand firm through whatever comes, like the Corinthian church had to do. Let's ensure our motivation always begins with love for each other. Paul, having explained the background of why he didn't return to Corinth and the relational conflict that was happening, now focuses in on an issue that the church needs to deal with as soon as possible in 2, 5 to 13. Forgiving the person who has caused the offence, bringing them back into the community and offering reconciliation. One of my favourite musicals is Les Miserables. In the opening section of the musical, we are introduced to Jean Valjean, who was in jail for 15 years because he stole a loaf of bread to save his sister's child. Having been released on parole, he tries to find a place to stay and work. But because he is a convict, no one will take him in. 
he stumbles across a church where the bishop offers him food and shelter. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean steals the bishop's silver. He is caught red-handed by the constables and is brought before the bishop. The constable says to the bishop, Monsieur, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. He had the nerve to say you gave him this. And the bishop responds, That is right, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? In a most incredible act of forgiveness, not only does the bishop give him the silver he took, but he gives him silver candlesticks with the plea that he uses the silver to become an honest man. Valjean's life transforms after this incredible act of forgiveness he received. Moved by the bishop's grace, Valjean breaks his parole and vows to start a new life under a new identity. The power of the bishop's act, defying every human instinct for revenge, changed Valjean's life forever. The Corinthian church have followed Paul's lead in doling out church discipline. And now it is time to follow his lead in extending forgiveness and restoration, like the bishop did. What's interesting is that Paul never goes into the details of what the offender has done. Scholars can speculate. We can guess. But I think part of the point may be, it's not about what the person has done at this stage. The point is not about what they have done, but the need for reconciliation and forgiveness within the community. In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It has had an impact on the church, and it is the church who now needs to take the first step to welcome the offender back into the community. God has forgiven, extended forgiveness and grace towards us in Christ. So forgiveness must be a fundamental aspect in our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. Extending grace to one another. Paul's focus is on the Corinthian community and it can be applied to us. Are we willing to extend forgiveness, not when it is easy, but because of the forgiveness that we have known through Christ. And honestly, as the church, we haven't always done the best job of modelling that. I was listening to the radio earlier this year, and the newsreader announced, Pope Francis will meet the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church for the first time in a thousand years. It is wonderful to see the beginnings of the extension of forgiveness and reconciliation that leaders such as Justin Welby and Pope Francis are doing. But it has been a thousand years. Historically, as the church, we have often displayed unforgiveness, division and ungrace to a world that so needs to know about the forgiveness and grace offered through Jesus. We are called to extend forgiveness as the church, as church and as individuals. 
it is a fundamental aspect of our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. And I think it's an area that we need to work on, both individually and corporately. I'm not saying that is easy or simple. C.S. Lewis said that to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Paul wants them to put into practice what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, to forgive those who sin against us. True forgiveness neither excuses the sin nor ignores what happened. It squarely faces the consequences of the person's offence. But it moves beyond it into a process of reconciliation, which is what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do. Where have we not offered forgiveness? Where are the areas in our lives where we have put being right or giving justice above forgiveness? Where is God asking you, asking me to forgive? Or perhaps, like the offender, you need to accept forgiveness that has been offered so that you can be reconciled with someone. I think God this morning is asking us to deal with the lack of forgiveness that we can harbour without even realising it, where we have held on to stuff instead of offering it up to God. Why does Paul think this forgiveness is so important? He explains in verse 10 to 11. There is such an interconnectedness in the way Paul writes. Anything you forgive, I also forgive. The troublesome person has not just injured Paul, but the whole community by their actions. Paul's purpose is redemptive. His concern is for the church and its well-being. With this interconnected relationship in mind, Paul says, forgive so that Satan may not outwin us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Forgiveness frustrates the plans of Satan, who wants to use people and situations for ill. If Satan realizes the power that forgiveness can have, then I think we need to sit up and take note. It is because he knows the incredible unity and reconciliation that can come when we offer forgiveness to one another. Given the way Satan schemes for the disunity of the church, forgiveness and reconciliation provide beautiful strategies for disrupting his plans. It is the unity of forgiven sinners, forgiving one another, that embodies and manifests the love of Christ to the world. Paul realizes that if Satan can divide the Corinthian church even more deeply, he will have succeeded in neutralizing its witness to the world. As a letter of Christ, which Paul talks about in our final section. Satan's goal is always to foil God's work of reconciliation. And yet, through God's gracious initiative, we have the means to overcome. Forgiveness brings unity and reconciliation. So let us be a people of forgiveness who work for unity and reconciliation out of grace and an acknowledgement that we are all parts of the body of Christ who need to stand firm together. What about us? We need to examine ourselves, recognize where we have not chosen to offer forgiveness 
or where we have hardened ourselves to receiving it. We need to be a people who offer and receive forgiveness freely, however costly. We need to recognize that the global church, God's dream for the global church, is to be reconciled to each other and to the world. We are all working in it together. There's not a competition or showdown over ministries or churches, over leaders or our gifts and skills. All are welcome and all are needed. We cannot share Jesus with the world without recognizing the centrality of forgiveness and reconciliation that is a part of the Christian message. So let us be a people who seek forgiveness and reconciliation, recognizing the incredible power that forgiveness has through Jesus. We began by looking at why Paul didn't come to Corinth. Then Paul's call to the Corinthian church to forgive and offer reconciliation. Finally, we begin to shift our gaze to why this forgiveness and reconciliation is important in our role as ministers of the new covenant, as ministers of reconciliation. It is so that we can communicate the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus to the world. So we can communicate his good news through our lives. In verse 13 to 14, we get the juxtaposition of Paul's unsettledness in trust and his thankfulness for the continued work of God through his ministry. Verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. The likely background to this is the Roman triumphal procession. The procession would proclaim the victory of a general upon the defeat of an enemy of Rome. The emperor would stand on a high two-wheeled chariot, which was adorned all around. The idea reminds me of the chariots in the Hunger Games. The spoils of war were carried along, marched to a flourish of trumpets. The air was filled with sweet smells released from the burning of spices along the street. Josephus, a first century writer, said of the procession, it was impossible to describe the multitude of the processions as they deserve and the magnificence of them. Although the procession was confined to Rome, the imagery of conquest and triumph was disseminated throughout the empire on imperial coins. As one writer said, it was the Super Bowl of the Roman world. As the Roman triumph proclaimed the glory of the victorious general, so the Pauline mission, so our mission, proclaims knowledge of the victory of Christ. God has launched a victory campaign of which the end is in no doubt. God has won the battle through Jesus' death and resurrection. The idea of leading in triumphal procession and spreading his aroma are directly associated with the sharing of the good news of Jesus to the world. Paul continues the triumphal imagery in verse 15 to 16, but introduces elements of contrast between a positive smell and a stench, the contrast of life and death. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are saved and those who are perishing. We are called to display the glory and aroma of Christ to the world, to display the good news that he offers. 
our very lives are a showcase of the good news. That is why forgiveness is so important. Forgiven sinners, forgiving one another, embodies and manifests the love of Christ to the world. Paul here divides humanity into two realms of existence. One of those who are being saved, God's reconciling work is still in progress, and those who are perishing. To those who have been grasped by the love and the power of the gospel and are responding, the smell is sweet. To those who are setting their face against the good news, the same smell seems to come from death and lead to death. For they have chosen to say, my will be done above God's will be done. The final part of verse 16 asks the question, who is equal to such a task? Who is sufficient to be the pleasing aroma of Christ? Who can rise to this challenge? The language of who is equal or sufficient alludes to the call of Moses in Exodus 4.10, where Moses declares that he is not sufficient for the task. It is God who makes Moses sufficient. And Paul answers his question slightly later on in 3.5-6. Who is equal to such a task? We are because our sufficiency is from God. It is only because of the new covenant work of God by the Spirit in and through us. As God made Moses sufficient for what was before him, Paul too sees a sufficiency coming only from God, not from anyone else. Verse 17 is Paul's declaration that unlike others who seek their own desire or do so for their own gain, as one translation says, that they speak with sincerity. We speak from God. We speak in God's presence. We speak in the Messiah. Our sufficiency rests in God, and from that comes our sending out into the world. In 3.1, Paul's denial of any need for letters of recommendation any references, is grounded in the obvious reality of the Corinthians' transformed lives. They are a letter from Christ. Verse 2 to 3 says, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, they are the letter of Christ to their community and their world. In the same way, we today are Christ's letter to the world. The message version says, your very lives are a letter that anyone can read by just looking at you. Christ himself wrote it. We are the ones who are called to be a letter from Christ. And that is an incredible thing, but also an incredible challenge. The Spirit raises us from the deadness of our sinful lives and makes us a letter from Christ who speak of his transforming grace with our words and display his power by our deeds. We are called to reveal Christ to the world, to be his pleasing aroma. Do our lives reflect Christ? Do I reflect the life-transforming message that he brings? I have known the transformation that God brings when I accepted him into my life. 
And yet, does my life, does your life, reflect all that God has done and wrought for me and this world? Verse 3 appeals to Old Testament prophecy, particularly of Ezekiel's hope in 11.19 and 36.26, written during Israel's exile. That one day God's word would be engraved not on stone tablets, but on fleshly tablets of the human heart. Paul is stating unequivocally that the promise of Ezekiel was now being fulfilled. Under the old covenant, the locus of God's activity was enacted through the law. Through Jesus, the spirit of the living God writes on our very hearts. Paul's point is that what makes someone a member of God's people under the new covenant is a life-transforming encounter with the glory of God. Paul draws a contrast between the law as it functions under the old covenant and its impotency to change one's heart and the potency of the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of the people within the new covenant. The living God has written something on the Corinthians' heart so that they will never be the same again. They are invited into the new covenant by God. And we are today, where we are called to partner with him to be the pleasing aroma of Christ to the world. Our transformed lives declaring the good news that Jesus' life, death and resurrection brings. That's what it means to be his aroma. We get to join in with his spirit-empowered ministry of reconciliation. This morning, you are invited to come forward to receive prayer ministry. Perhaps you want prayer for an heir in your life that you need to forgive by his spirit, someone who has hurt you. Where there is pain and hurt, God can come and provide healing. Perhaps you have an area in your life you need to seek forgiveness from God or from someone else. We would love to pray for areas where you need God to break into this situation, where you need forgiveness or to forgive. Perhaps you need to invite God into a situation where there has been relational conflict. And now God wants to move you through a process of reconciliation and re-establishment of relationships. Is there an area in your life where you are not reflecting the aroma of Christ to the world? An area where you need to invite him in to work in your heart and bring transformation. If you want the courage to display the glory and aroma of Christ everywhere you go, to live a life of integrity, we would love to pray for you and with you. Or perhaps you want to experience the life-transforming power of the living God perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the hundred. Whatever your need is this morning, I would love to invite you to come forward to be prayed for. Please stand and I'll pray.